in today's episode of Rob Conrad Conversations, Dr. Aubrey de Grey. One thing that we can certainly say is that ageing causes suffering. It doesn't cause even a little bit of suffering. It causes far more suffering than anything else that we have in the world today. He fights against an enemy that kills 100,000 people every single day. Aging is the number one problem for humanity, and it is a complete scandal that we are not doing our best to do something about that. But he is sure that he's found a solution. Came to the conclusion that we might actually be able to turn back the top of aging, in other words, make people biologically younger again, more easily than the things that people were trying to do before that, which was to slow down and just make them um, not age quite rapidly. The fact is, we know enough now that we are within striking distance of bringing aging under complete medical control, the same kind of medical control that we already have today over most infectious disease. A captivating interview with a controversial genius. Join the conversation now. Welcome to Rob Conrad Conversations. Conversations with extraordinary people that motivate and inspire. Learn, grow, and impact lives. Subscribe now and hit the bell icon for a new conversation every week. Here comes the sunshine and burns away clouds like they never were. Um, hey, welcome. This is Rob Conrad from Switzerland. I'm really excited to have a very special person with me on the line. He started his career uh, in the field of artificial intelligence. Until a few years back, he decided to change careers and change professions and start a war. Start a war against the one thing that kills more people than car accidents and wars and terrorism and uh, obesity and drugs and Teslas combined, which is aging. And he's become one of the leading experts in the field, um, not without criticism for his quite radical theories in the beginning. Um, he's the founder of the Sense Research Foundation. He has written a book on a subject called Ending Aging, which I really recommend you to read. And as you can see, he has a pretty magnificent beard. Welcome and thank you, Dr. Audrey de Grey. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you very much. So first question I have is, um, why is it that if you try to end starvation in the world or end hunger in the world, or if you try to cure cancer or um, fight against HIV, you're almost a hero, even if you just do tiny little steps. But if you talk about making people uh, live 200 years or 500 years or a thousand years, then public seems to be trying to looking for uh, the, the highest tree to hang you from because you're going to turn around society and you're going to ruin it all and you're going to be you know, the leading cause of overpopulation and all these kind of things. Why is it that people don't accept that? Yeah, it's a hard question, isn't it? Um, I think I have come to understand it over the years. Um, I think fundamentally it's because aging is really, really horrible, but it is something that for the whole history of civilization, we have been unable to do anything about. And also it happens reliably at a reasonably predictable age, you know, a number of years after you were born. Um, so this really distinguishes it from all of the other things that we're talking about. It doesn't really distinguish it from the so-called diseases of old age, of course, the, like cancer or Alzheimer's or whatever, because we know biologically that all of those things will also happen to you unless one of the others does, right? 
Um, but people don't think about it that way. Intuitively, they feel, you know, some people get cancer, some people don't, in just the same way that some people get HIV and some people don't. Um, and some people get starvation and some people don't. So it kind of, that, that non-uniformity is, seems to be a requirement for people to be able to aim high and try to actually reduce the proportion of people that do suffer from the particular thing in question. Whereas in the case of aging, it is perceived to be, you know, in a, a different category, so to speak. And I think that really is the underpinning for all the irrationalities that we come across, whether it's um, saying that aging is fundamentally off limits for medicine because, like, stopping it would be equivalent to creating perpetual motion, or whether it's saying that it would be a bad thing if we didn't have aging because of crazy reasons like overpopulation or inability to pay the pensions or whatever. Um, you know, or, you know, some people would say that the whole of religion is a part of this kind of um, arsenal of psychological tricks that we have, um, that civilization has, um, uh, has put together in order to kind of put aging out of our minds and get on with our miserably short lives. So could you explain quickly to um, those people who are not familiar with the work what SENSE is doing and uh, what's the core of your research? Sure. So um, SENSE Foundation is centered on the concept that I first put forward back in the year 2000 and have been um, promoting ever since, which was, as you mentioned in your introduction, quite a radical departure from what people in the biology of aging were thinking previously. The departure was that I came to the conclusion that we might actually be able to turn back the clock of aging, in other words, make people biologically younger again, more easily than the thing that people were trying to do before that, which was to slow down the clock and just make them um, not age quite so rapidly. That was very counterintuitive. And furthermore, um, it's a divide and conquer strategy because it involves repairing a variety of different types of damage. And people who studied the biology of aging had, for very many years, uh, you know, decades and decades, they had really abandoned and uh, formed a very low opinion of the whole idea of a divide and conquer strategy, because what they had done was look at the failure of geriatric medicine. So, of course, geriatric medicine is all about um, treating the ill health of old age as a collection of diseases that are individually no different than infections, trying to eliminate each of them. And it became very obvious that this is a kind of whack-a-mole thing that's just not going to happen. Um, so what I was trying to do was to demonstrate and to persuade people that the uh, idea of attacking the damage that accumulates throughout life and eventually results in these aspects of ill health in old age, that's different. It's kind of uh, a sweet spot between prevention and treatment. Yes, it's a divide and conquer strategy with multiple components to it, but not nearly such a large multiple as um, the geriatric approach, while conversely, because we are repairing damage rather than trying to manipulate our metabolism to run more cleanly, uh, we don't have to understand so much about our biology, so we've got more chance of doing it. And that whole concept has now become pretty widely appreciated and understood, and people generally think that the damage repair approach has legs. Um, you know, some people are still reluctant to say that it's the best approach, which is what I say, but at least they said they have legs. Um, but that took a long time.
I, I like the example that you made in your book that it's comparable to fixing a car. If you, you want to fix uh, I know, a broken window or a flat tire, you don't need to understand what happens to the flat tire and the million ways that could cause a flat tire. You just need to fix a damn tire and then exactly. that's it. And then you're good to go in 50 minutes. So. And my critics in the field basically were fine with that analogy up to a point. But they said, yes, but quantitatively it doesn't work. The human body is so much more complicated that we'll never manage it. In other words, they were failing to make the distinction between repairing damage and addressing the pathologies that eventually result from the damage. So you likened your approach in a way to engineering. It's more of an engineering approach. Um, so why is it so hard for uh, people from the medical profession to use this approach? Because it seems, for, for me as a non-medical non guy, it seems quite obvious to, to go just for, for, the, you know, for the damage and then just to fix it. But it seems to be quite a resistance in that. Why, why do you think is that? Well, really, the answer to your question is that there is no medical community per se in this respect. What we need to do is talk about two very different communities. One of them is the MDs, the actual medics. And they, yes, they think perfectly like engineers. They're perfectly fine with the idea of doing what works and, and so on. Uh, but they are focused on doing the best with the tools that already exist, with the medicines and techniques that they have available to them already. They are not in the business of speculating about what tools might exist in the future. That's for the biologists, the researchers. And the researchers, the other community I'm talking about, they are very much not technologists. The, um, the way in which one does research is just psychologically, just in a mindset, very, very different from the way that one does technology. When you're trying to do basic research, you're trying to test hypotheses, you're trying to understand the way that nature works. And the way that you use what you already know there is essentially that you, um, you focus on the most direct evidence in order to figure out what experiment to do next in order to subdivide the hypotheses that are still available. Um, and the last thing you do is take, you know, leaps of faith and say, well, okay, let's try and, like, put two and two together and make 17. Whereas yep. in technology, in pioneering technology, when you're trying to invent a radically new way of achieving something that's never been achieved to manipulate nature as opposed to understanding it, then that's exactly what you do. You take leaps of faith. And, you, you know, you have a bunch of components, shall we say, that you either already have that are working, doing their particular job, or at least you believe you can build them. And you look one step further, you say, well, okay, supposing we have all these components and we put them together in this particular configuration, this will achieve some new phenomenon, some new, some new skill, some new ability that none of the individual components could actually do on its own. And, you know, basic scientists just have an incredibly hard time thinking that way. So, you know, it took me a long time to understand this, actually. It was only after, in the early 90s, when they started getting interested in aging and started to be so amazed that biologists were not really working on it, that I began to understand this profound difference of mindset. And how did you approach um, your switch from technology to into this field? So what was your, I mean, you, you were not trained in this field um, in the beginning. You started from scratch, basically. Um, how did you get get on with this? Well, in the first instance, <clears throat> we have to remember that research is a very transferable skill. And here I'm using research to cover both the basic research and the technological research, right? So, you know, if you're good at working on really hard problems and you've done it a bit and you've generally figured out how, then um, transferring it to a different domain involves obviously learning a bunch of new facts, but it doesn't really involve much else in terms of how you think. 
So, you know, being trained up, you know, wasn't really hard. I was able to do it just myself by reading and by going to a lot of conferences and meeting people and talking to people. Um, now, uh, on top of that, though, I got very lucky. I had been able in the um, <clears throat> um, early 1990s to, to uh, get into a very undemanding job in the University of Cambridge, a bioinformatics job that I only took because it gave me a huge amount of spare time. I, um, you know, it wasn't an interesting job at all. Uh, but the spare time was very useful because I had run out of money to do my artificial intelligence research. And this was a way to be able to do it in my spare time, uh, you know, with, with, with obviously also the benefits of all the access to all the university facilities. So it was really rather good. But what it meant was that a few years later, when I decided that I wanted to switch fields, that it was just a matter of switching what I did in my spare time, which was a risk-free thing. And, you know, so everything was very much more straightforward than it would have been for most people. Now, in terms of why I did it, um, you know, I mean, one of the big reasons was that it's not just that you can move into another field uh, if you're already good at researching some first field, but it's also the fact that there's a number of good examples of people doing this and doing a lot more important work in their new field than they do in their old one. Um, uh, the, the best, best, best example is definitely the um, creation of molecular biology. That was done by a bunch of physicists in 1950. Um, you know, the whole of molecular biology was literally done by physicists. Um, and, uh, you know, so this was kind of an inspiration to me to feel that I had a chance of making a contribution. Okay. okay. Talking about running out of funding, um, since Research Foundation is a non-profit organization, um, I know that you're always trying to get more funds in. Um, do you think that the fact that it's a non-profit organization could um, prevent potential investors from, from giving money because they don't see the returns that they might see in whatever random for-profit company? But for sure. There are plenty of people with deep pockets out there who fundamentally get the idea that this is worth doing, but they really don't like giving money away. Uh, but there is a countervailing um, influence on us, which is that some of the work that needs to be done is still at such an early stage that we just can't make a value proposition. You can't join the dots well enough to actually let people, even really visionary investors, see a way to make money in the long run. So when we started out 10 years ago or thereabouts, um, that was even more true. There were, you know, that was true for basically everything we wanted to do. So we had to be a non-profit. And, of course, we had to persuade some people to give us money. And most of the people who did were not people with much money to give. So we, so they were giving us, you know, $100 a month or whatever. Um, eventually, I was able to get one major donor on board. That was, of course, Peter Thiel, who started giving us in the region of a million dollars a year, starting in 2006. Um, and he did it precisely because of this. He recognized that with this, you know, essential value of death there where you've got to be philanthropic first in order to make things go far enough to be able to invest. And it has definitely worked out. So what's happened is that um, so far five of our projects, we've been able to spin them out into startup companies, all of which are doing fine in terms of getting investment. And most of the investment that they're getting is from people who are not giving us any money or who are giving us you know, far less money than they are giving the companies. Uh, <clears throat> So, yeah, what you're saying is certainly true, and we are now at the position of essentially um, sidestepping that problem. However, what we must also emphasize is that there still remain some projects which are at too early a stage, and therefore, 
that uh, the you know the, the, the non-profit remains essential. It remains the absolute you know um, uh, vital engine room of the rejuvenation biotechnology industry. And I'm very pleased to say that most of our major investors at this point are buying that. They are seeing now, which they may not have seen a few years ago, that it is worth at least putting a small amount of money into the non-profit in order to create the next opportunity. Okay. okay. And what, what kind of funds do you have available at moments per year? You are running on around $5 million per year. Um, you know, it's it's definitely not nearly enough. If we could add another zero to that, then I believe we could probably go about three times faster. Not ten times faster, because obviously we're working on the things which are most pro most productive, but certainly three times faster. And that's a lot of lives that are being unnecessarily wasted. So I'm not happy about that. Absolutely, absolutely. So what what can people do to support you? Well, um, of course, write me a large check, doesn't hurt. Uh, but also, um, you know, a lot of people can't write large checks, but I always point out that the poorer you are, the more people you know who are wealthier than you. So, um, uh, so uh, you know, uh, advocacy is what it's all about, of course. You know, raising the quality of debate in this area, getting people to reject the pro-aging trance that people have been in, that civilization has been in, you know, that the causes them to make up these crazy, stupid excuses for why aging is some kind of blessing in disguise. Mm. Okay. okay. And you put your money where your mouth is. I mean, you invested a big chunk of your personal wealth into the foundation. Uh, I, got, I, I inherited $16.5 million dollars in 2011 when my mother died. And I uh, donated 13 million of that to the foundation. It was complicated because uh, my mother was British and the charity is a US charity, of course. So we had to create an intermediate charity in the UK, but we made it all. Um, yeah, so I only held on to enough to buy a really lovely house in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And um, and yes, the foundation did, uh, basically we were able to, the budget at, back then in 2011, 2012 was only about $2 million dollars. So we were able to more or less double that over a period of five years. And then it looked very tight when the month, because we decided to, we decided to spend all of that money over the five years, you see. So it ran out at the end of 2016. And it was looking very, very risky. We looked as though we might even have to close down because what we had been trying but unsuccessfully to do for that whole time was to bring in new money to replace my money when it ran out. And um, in the nick of time, some people came along. A German donor named Michael Graver, in particular, first came along and um, was able to, uh, give, uh, to, to, to bail us out to the tune of a million dollars per year. He's also one of our investors. Um, and then Peter Thiel himself, um, who had actually been gradually winding down his um, donation, we were able to persuade him to come back for another whole million last year. So long and short of it, we scraped through last year. And then at the end of last year, we had a massive windfall courtesy of cryptocurrencies, um, which of okay. course exploded and a number of people became much wealthier than they expected. And we were able to garner a total of something like six million dollars out of all of that, um, from four major donors. Um, we're spending that money cautiously because we of course know that, um, that's not necessarily going to happen again. Uh, but yes, it's a little bit better than it was. Okay, okay. And did you have any like Patreon or something uh, set up for people to donate on a regular basis? Like people like me that can't give you five million dollars, but would love to contribute on a monthly basis, for example? Sure. I mean, in fact, we didn't. We, we, we've done it much more simply than that. You can do that at PayPal. You can set up a regular um, subscription. Oh. So yeah, most of our donation, most of our small donations are actually monthly donations. Okay. Okay. That's great. Okay. 
And um, what are things, what are misconceptions about your work that annoy you? So what are what do people get wrong on a almost daily basis? It's actually not so much things that people get wrong. Um, you know, I've got used to the fact that people start out from a position of you know, the pro-aging chance, as I said, of being very cautious about accepting either the feasibility or the desirability of defeating aging with with, with foreseeable medicine. Um, what I haven't really got used to is the fact that they don't listen to the answers. Because I've been giving basically the same answers on camera and on stage, time after time, you know, week in, week out. I do probably 50 talks a year, probably 100 interviews a year, um, you know, for more than a decade now. And... It's not that people rebut the answers I give, you know, and say, no, your reassurance that this will be okay or that this will actually be feasible breaks down for this particular reason, especially on the desirability side, non-scientists, you know, they will just listen quietly and, you know, move on to the next question or whatever. And then the following day, it will all have been a bad dream and they'll wake up and it will have just disappeared and they will come back with the same question unadorned. You know, it's, it's very frustrating. And, you know, again, psychologically, I kind of understand it. I kind of get that people have made their peace with aging and it's incredibly difficult to get someone to re-engage in a, you know, a, an issue that they've made their peace with. Uh, but still, it is frustrating. Okay. Uh, has anything changed fundamentally since you've written your book in 2007, I believe? Um, were there any, any major changes to your theories or because I've, I've did some research on, um, for example, you mentioned, um, Altion in your book, the company, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that company does no longer exist. So it seems like something went wrong along the way. Um, are there things like that who kind of where you headed the wrong way? So the short answer is no, nothing has changed to speak of, um, except for good things that have happened that were surprises like the development of CRISPR or the development of induced pluripotent stem cells. You know, these are providing obviously shortcuts that make our job easier. Um, no, I mean, actually the one you mentioned, um, the, uh, situation with crosslinks is the only, it's probably the best example of something that comes close to what you're suggesting. But even there, it's not really the case because the overall idea that we had was to develop um, drugs or enzymes that could cleave various crosslinks that accumulate and cause tissues to get less elastic. And yes, it turned out that, at least in humans, the type of crosslinks that the Altion compounds are able to break seem not to be very important. But so what, really? Because we already knew that the, what crosslinks are important, you know, accumulate at much higher abundance in humans. And we were able to adopt the same approach to breaking those. And that's gone rather well. In fact, the next project that we are in the process of spinning out into another new company, number six, um, we'll be doing exactly that based on work that we funded for a good few years at Yale University. Um, they, they were able to make some very important breakthroughs, um, including publication in Science Magazine, which was a nice high profile for us. Um, uh, but yeah, that's very much ready to, ready to spin out now. Okay. Okay, I see. Um, I know from other interviews that you did that you mentioned the difference between living a perfectly healthy lifestyle, you know, just living on smoothies and exercising every day and whatnot, and not doing anything is actually not that big, so it's not really worthwhile doing that. Yeah, I'd like to be a little bit more precise. So, I mean, of course, there is a significant difference between living a good lifestyle and living a bad lifestyle. But what I like to do is to split lifestyle choices into three groups rather than two. 
In other words, I say, okay, there's living a genuinely bad lifestyle, you know, smoking, getting seriously overweight and so on. Then there's living basically the way your mother told you to. In other words, you know, not doing those things, uh, you know, having a reasonably balanced diet, but not doing anything special either. And then the third group is doing everything you can think of, you know, taking a hundred supplements a day and, you know, um, you know, uh, going on a particular diet and all that kind of stuff. So my belief is that certainly relative to the middle one, the, the standard lifestyle, um, the, the bad one can significant will, will, will on average lead to a significantly shorter lifespan. But the good one will only lead to an insignificantly greater lifespan, if anything. So the, you know, it reaches diminishing returns by the time you're doing what your mother told you to. Uh, okay, okay. But couldn't that be that one or two years that's the time needed for the breakthrough and then... Oh, don't, <coughs> don't get me wrong. Yes, absolutely. I'm certainly not telling people not to do that. Absolutely not. Okay. I'm just saying that don't put your faith in it. In other words, you know, if people could have the misimpression that they could get an extra 20 years of life that kind of way, then that correspondingly diminishes their um, urgency with regard to the rate at which our research gets done so that things do exist that actually can give you 20 years of extra life. Um, okay. You know, and, and that's very important not to let that happen. Okay, yeah. Talking about faith, are you a religious person in any way? No. 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 Okay, so you really believe in science and science only. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, when I was a teenager, I came to the conclusion that really, you know, it was impossible to decide whether whether God exists and if God exists, then which one, you know. But it kind of didn't matter because for me, in terms of what I was choosing to do with my life, I had already decided I wanted to make a difference in the world. Back then it was to work on artificial intelligence. Um, and I realized that basically, you know, every holy scripture tells you basically to do what I'm doing already, you know, to, 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 to improve people's quality of life and so on. Um, so kind of, uh, you know, whether I believe in God or not isn't going to change how I live. So I might as well not waste my time trying to make the decision whether God exists. So I've okay. maintained that view ever since. Have you received a lot of criticism from religious people? Actually, no. Um, you know, maybe that will happen as, the, as things move forward, but I'm kind of expecting not, actually, because the conversations that I have had so far with religious people that have started out in, you know, uh, them being opposed to what we're doing um, have gone rather well. Basically, what I have done is taken the rather strong position. I've said, look, um, One thing that we can certainly say is that aging causes suffering. It doesn't cause even a little bit of suffering. It causes far more suffering than anything else that we have in the world today. And if there's anything that Holy Scripture tells you, it's that, it's that you know, um, uh, what we're supposed to do while we're down here is to, um, is to minimize people's suffering. Uh, so in a very strong sense, it would be a sin not to work on this. And, you know, people don't exactly turn around and say, oh dear, I haven't thought of that. Here is a last check. But, um, but they do kind of go very quiet very quickly. So okay. it, it seems to be an effective argument. And certainly some of the people that have been working in this discipline and uh, have been major players are very religious people. Um, so, for example, the person with whom I started the Methuselah Foundation, Dave Goebel, is a lifelong Jehovah's Witness. <coughs> okay, so, so technically saving 100,000 people a day would give you a lot of karma points, which count somewhere, whatever it is. Okay. <laughs> um, why do you think there's so much um, personal criticism against your work? So I've, I've um, found a, a quote on a, um, a website where it says, um, 
Aubrey is a bearded, middle-aged British hipster who works in the field of bi uh, biogerontology and expresses himself through ponderous ruminations studded with malapropic literary flourishes. He's also polyamorous, nudist, married to uh, and so on and so on. Why do people get so personal about your work? It's, I, I couldn't believe how, how, and I've seen a few of those. Why is that? Well, I mean, that kind of remark, you know, you get that on the internet all the time, right? I mean, this is the, this is the nature of the internet. There are always people who... Um, Seem to and seem to you know entertain themselves by expressing themselves in this way by against anyone who's doing anything remotely interesting. So I'm not worried about that at all. Um, you know, I think I, I think what's more important is the more um, um, reasonable sounding criticisms. You know, uh, which are of course the ones we've already dealt with. You know, the ones about you know what what would we do with the problems that we will create if we didn't have anything anymore. And also, of course, you know, can we actually do it at all? So. No, okay, okay. Um, what has been your biggest breakthrough so far, you would say? Is there any, anything specific where you said, hey, this really is something that we're onto something here? Oh, all right. Yeah, that's going. All right, we're back. Where were we? Good question. Um, where were we? Um, look at myself. Wait. Oh, well, let's let's just continue with <laughs> something. Now we'll see where we go. Um, so, yeah. Well, one thing I was th uh, one thing I was th thinking about um, if we basically stop dying and and just live longer. Won't it mean that our, the development of our species will come to a halt? And isn't this, or is it a problem that's not really a problem? Well, first of all, yeah, it's the kind of problem I'd like to have. But also, no, it's not going to happen anyway. Because the point is that evolution hitherto has been limited to natural selection on the basis of reproduction and genetic variation occurring during meiosis. But <clears throat> um, it's not going to be like that anymore. Because we're getting rather good at manipulating the genetic composition of people who are already alive. So, um, you know, evolution is actually going to speed up enormously as a result of the ability to, um, to, 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 to create new genetic variants without the whole time consuming reproduction business. Okay, I see. It's self made evolution, so to speak. Okay. Yeah. Now, I remember where we left off um, your biggest breakthroughs so far. Yeah, so I can't really give a straight answer to that question anymore because we've made quite a lot of them. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we've done a lot of projects over the years. Um, many of them have lasted several years before they really had any significant progress. But nearly all of them have now got to the point where, in fact, all of the, all of the long-standing ones have got to the point where we've been able to make big breakthroughs, publish them in highly prominent journals, and in most cases, spend the market companies. And this has always happened as a result of what happened in the lab. So the first one that really counted was in atherosclerosis, where the group that we were funding at Rice University were able to uh, incorporate a, a modified version of a bacterial gene into human cells and thereby protect it from the main toxic molecule that drives the progression of atherosclerosis. That was published in a, a good journal in, 19, in 2012, and it was actually the basis of our first spin-out company. Then we did more or less the same thing with uh, 
Macular generation. Actually, what happened there was that the company was formed really before we'd made significant breakthroughs because the guy who wanted to create the company was working for us and believed that he knew how to um, solve the last you know, piece of the jigsaw, so to speak. And it turned out he was right. So that's also um, gone very nicely and the company is doing well. Uh, and, you know, I could go on. There's quite a few of these now. I just mentioned earlier the question of um, cross-linking, which uh, we were able, as I say, to get um, great progress in that led to a publication in Science Magazine. It's now being spun out. Okay. Regarding pub publication, um, in your book, you mentioned that there's this kind of stranglehold or chokehold between uh, the governments and scientists and the public, and kind of we can't progress unless someone is brave enough to break out and and do something different, which you're trying to do, obviously. Has that changed? Has it become a little bit easier to pub publish uh, your your radical theories or publishing has always been easy you know you don't have to publish in the top journals um so uh, so that's never been a problem but funding doesn't come from that necessarily public funding largely comes in fact it pretty much entirely comes from gr applying for a grant and having that grant reviewed by colleagues who are supposed to be experts in the field <clears throat> and of course those colleagues Yes, they're experts, but they don't understand what you want to do as well as you do. And also, they have their own vested interests in terms of making sure that they don't fund things, with, they don't approve the funding of things that then turn out to be, um, you know, unwise, you know, that, that, that don't, don't result in, in progress. Furthermore, the progress that has to result has to be quick. In other words, it has to happen before the grunt cycle is over. So this leads to a huge, huge bias in public funding across the world um, against high-risk, high-reward work, which may take a long time to, to come to fruition. It also hugely biases against multidisciplinary work that brings fields together that have not hitherto been combined. And everybody understands that these things are true and that they are a big problem. But nobody does anything about it because each individual you know, constituency, whether it's the government or whether it's the scientists who are applying or whether it's the scientists who are um, you know, doing the evaluations, they all have their own vested interests. It's a kind of classic prisoner's dilemma thing where nobody, nothing actually happens. Um, and, you know, it's terrible. Uh, and so, yeah, that's really the only reason why I went the non-profit route to create a, um, a, a, an organization that doesn't have this kind of constituency that has to already agree before something is attempted that it's going to work and it's going to work soon. Um, now, of course, the private sector is now going involved, as I said, but again, that wasn't possible early on because, you know, again, you know, private sector people, companies have shareholders and they need to worry. They need to be short-termist for a different reason, a quarterly balance seat kind of reason. Um, we're only now in a position where that bridge has kind of been bridged, um, that, that chasm has been bridged because we have um, been able to identify investors who are courageous enough um, to, you know, to take these risks, but also more importantly, that the science has come far enough along that the risk is, you know, within range. And the Sense Foundation, because you mentioned in uh, one of the documentaries about you that you would be happy to kind of disappear into oblivion and just uh, be done with all that interviewing and uh, all the public speaking and just, just focus on other things. Um, you would be too sad about that. Tell me about it. <laughs> um, wouldn't that be a risk for the um, foundation itself because they need this kind of profit figure that you are to to 
go up there relentlessly and just repeat over and over again and take the frustration and take the hits and just just uh, deal with it? Oh, sure, sure, absolutely. I mean, the only time that I'm going to do this retreating into glorious obscurity is when that has ceased to be true. You know, when they, when the movement has a momentum, a sufficiently, you know, large momentum of its own, that, I, that, you know, there are people involved in it that are better than me at all the things I'm good at, including the advocacy side and the charisma side and all that, right? Um, yeah, so it's not going to happen anytime soon, but I'm still looking forward to it. Okay. So besides, besides um, donating money, what can people do to spread the word about you? Well, I mean, really, talk about it. It's not just about me, of course. It's about sense in general. It's about the general idea that defeating aging, A, is actually a desirable goal, and B, is feasible by a comprehensive damage repair approach of the sort that we have pioneered. Um, so, yeah, I mean, really, it's just, you know, getting a basic amount of knowledge about what the answers are to the um, invalid criticisms that are made on both sides, the desirability and the feasibility, and going out there and bloody giving those answers, you know, making a nuisance of oneself exactly the way that I've always done. Um, you know, I, I've always felt that... Um, it was essential, as soon as possible, to get some kind of diversity of outreach, of advocacy out there. Because, you know, I'm very good at what I do, but I only do what I do. You know, I have a particular way of saying things, a particular way of getting things across. And, you know, some of the audiences resonate with my particular style, and some don't. And so we need other people to get the same kind of message in different words, in different language, and, um, you know, then we'll reach more people. I'm going back to artificial intelligence. So coming from the field of artificial intelligence, is that still something that you follow a little bit? Um, do you have a little bit of heart left for that? Sure. <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't get enough time by any means to follow it as much as I would like. But um, yeah, I still think it's extremely important that we should solve that problem, no problem of work, unless they were being paid for it. And um, you know, it's going well, obviously. And yeah, I keep in, in touch with some um, and um, so we keep an occasional touch. Uh, but yeah, um, I, I believe it's going well. Uh, I think that the people who are really leading the charge have their heads screwed on, not just technically, but also societally. They know what the priorities are and should be. And so, yeah, I think, I think that field is in good hands right now. Do you see any uh, crossover options between the work that you're doing and artificial intelligence? Oh, for sure, yeah. So um, uh, the, there are a number of examples out there already. There's a company named Insilico Medicine, which is headed by one of my longest standing and closest colleagues, Alex Lavoronkov. Um, it's working precisely on applying machine learning to the discovery of new treatments for aging. And it's by no means the only one. There are a number of groups looking at that kind of approach. Okay, okay. But do we need to be afraid that one day machines will rule over us before it's then then we're getting a thousand years old, even worse? Well, I mean, I think it's one of those things where it's reasonable to consider the possibility and to guard against it as best we can. But equally, the possibility may turn out to be just you know misplaced. It may just not be even mathematically possible to create machines that. Um, uh, what are called recursively self-improving uh, with, a, with a degree of autonomy that would be dangerous. Uh, we just don't know yet, to be honest. But yes, I think it's good that the idea has been raised and that people are genuinely thinking about taking it seriously. So we'll see what happens.
Um, do you think that if we get older and older, um, older and older, um, society will change lots? Well, yes, but not because of that. I mean, I think the point is that society already changes increasingly rapidly as a result of a variety of different technologies. And indeed, number, some of the technologies that are coming soon, you know, and are going to change the world quite dramatically before the, um, uh, before the end of aging, um, you know, those technologies will actually obviate and preempt the so-called problems that the end of aging might otherwise have created. So artificial intelligence, of course, is one of these things. You know, people say, how will we pay the pensions or, you know, won't people have to work forever? And of course, the answer is precisely no, because people won't have to work at all. Um, um, and similarly, with overpopulation, people say, oh dear, where are we going to put all the people? But of course, the problem is not the people. The problem is that the pollution that the people create and the pollution in question, especially things like, um, you know, uh, greenhouse gases, you know, those problems are being solved by technology right now. Not even, and, and it didn't even require society to wake up and say, oh dear, climate change matters quite a lot. You know, it's happening just because, um, technology is making renewable energy cheaper than fossil fuels. So, um, yeah, basically, I have two last questions for you. So, one question I'm always asking is, um, this series of interviews is about extraordinary people like you. Um, what would be someone extraordinary that you would like to see interviewed next? Well, of course, it kind of depends how broadly you want your range of topics to range. Um, if you want to uh, talk to other people who are leading the crusade against aging, then I've got a few suggestions, I guess. You know, people who are um, kind of doing things that are complementary to what I'm doing. Um, Eric Verdun at the Buck Institute would be a great example. He's very much a believer that aging is a bad thing and we ought to fix it. He's a lot more pessimistic than me about time frames, but that's, you know, that, um, scientists are allowed to agree to disagree about things like that. And he's, he's certainly got a great deal of of prominence and influence with regard to making things happen, so that would be great. Liz Parrish would be another great person to interview. She is a relatively recent arrival on the scene. She really only discovered this whole crusade about five years ago, but she is an unbelievably powerful and charismatic advocate. She's risen to quite a lot of prominence recently as a result of some self-experimentation she did with Dishon, but the consequence of it in terms of the exposure that it has given her is huge. And has, you know, that's what matters to me because she is extremely good at making the most of that exposure. Um, you know, um, outside of, uh, of the crusade against aging, well, certainly, People, major people in the artificial intelligence world are worth talking to if you can get to them. Of course, you know, I've known Demis Hassabis for 20 years, but even I can only get to see him about once a year for about an hour these days. So um, he may be hard to get to. Um, uh, you know, that, that, those kinds of people. And of course, there are other areas that are equally fascinating in this space. People who are working on new, solar, new, new forms of renewable energy or uh, people who are working on artificial meat or, you know, desalination. There are lots of technologists out there who are doing really exciting things. I think it would be nice to be able to identify people with that kind of vision who are not on the technology side, but rather on the, you know, the policy side and so on. And there are a few such people who are 
in a position to make a difference by supporting the technology rather than pioneering it. Um, Jeff Bezos, you know, obviously has done a lot of that. Um, you know, uh, but um, really, it's, what I'd like to be able to do is point you to people in government, people who are actually policy makers. And uh, unfortunately, it's hard life being in government because your only priority is to get re-elected and that has to happen fairly soon, which means that visionary stuff tends to get rather swept away. And it's risky, so it's not always good for your reputation. So final question, um, to close the interview, what would be your main message, your core message to everyone who's uh, watching this video? My core message is that aging is the number one problem for humanity, the thing that causes by far the most suffering. Let one's fear of getting one's hopes up, etc., um, you know, get in the way of rational thinking about it. The fact is, we know enough now that we are within striking distance of bringing aging under complete medical control, the same kind of medical control that we already have today over most infectious diseases. And it is a complete scandal that we are not doing our best to do something about that. Michael Rose, uh, a predecessor of mine as the, like the most high profile, believe we will bring aging under control. And when we do, we will, we will as a species, be extremely ashamed that we didn't do it more quickly. And I believe that that's absolutely true. Aubrey, I thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. And I'll hopefully talk to you very soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for watching. And in a few seconds, you'll hear about the extraordinary person that I'm going to talk to in my next conversation. But before that, I need to ask you for your help. See, finding people who inspire and motivate you to make a change. That's what's most important to me. But to connect you with these amazing people and to bring you conversations that you will not find anywhere else, I need you to become a part of our journey. So please get involved and leave a comment below with your own questions and maybe even tell me who I should talk to next. And if you know anyone who might like this conversation, then please share it because I'm sure that they will like it too and it will help to grow this channel and to make an impact together. And by the way, on my website you will find all current and upcoming episodes, including show notes and transcripts, background info, books and websites of my guests, podcast links, and much more. And once you become an email subscriber, there is always some exclusive content, so don't forget to sign up, and I'll see you in the next conversation. In the next episode, Rob talks to Laura Decker. When she was 14, she started on a journey to become the youngest person to circumnavigate the planet. Alone in her tiny sailing vessel, without support boats, checkpoints, or any other help. But even before she started her dangerous journey that lasted 518 days, she had to fight a legal battle that separated her from her parents, went through courts and media for months, and even involved government wiretaps and surveillance. Rob and Laura talk about why a 14-year-old wants to go on an adventure that cost the lives of countless older people that tried before her, how her parents reacted to her plan, how her worst accident that broke her skull actually occurred on land, and much more. Join the conversation now.